You're listening to Paradigms on WBKM.org. This is episode number 56, Sunday, October 17th, 2010. and tears at everything he dreams oh emptiness has been his foundation waiting for approval never seems to come knocks him to the ground leaves him bruised and numb Finished hallways lead to nowhere. What becomes of dashed attempts? No light to turn on to help him see the way. Split fragile bonds where connection might have been. Oh, emptiness has been his foundation. Waiting for approval never seems to come Knocks him to the ground and leaves him bruised and numb Now he is an old man with dashed hopes on his face Sits alone at midnight with his whiskey chase Not good enough, he mumbles to himself Caps an empty bottle and he puts it on the shelf Oh, Emptiness has been his foundation Waiting for approval never seems to come Knocks him to the ground and leaves him bruised and numb Welcome to Paradigms. This is Baruch here with you. Another Sunday night here on WBKM.org. We've got a wonderful show to you tonight. We have a guest in the studio tonight, Sarah Monroe. Hey ho, I'm here. Welcome, Sarah. We just heard your song, Whiskey Chase. Thank you. And we're going to listen to some more uh, music from Sarah, and she's going to talk about some work she's doing about helping people bring out their creative genius. We've also got an interview with former FBI agent and former FBI counsel Colleen Rowley, who's a, now a peace activist and a federal whistleblower. So we'll be getting into that later on in the show. But let's talk with Sarah. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad to be here. It's really exciting. It's Yay. great. Yay. So tell us about Whiskey Chase. Well, Whiskey Chase is, um, well, po- probably some of you know someone who fits that kind of personality, and they've kind of all their life been waiting for something to happen and it's just not happening and whiskey's kind of taken over their life and 
is it going to get any better? doesn't really look too happy. And so I wrote it just because I, I was working with that kind of personality for a while, and I just needed to express it, and I expressed it in the song. It's a good song because it really kind of leaves you without a resolution. Yeah, and so much of that is unresolved and doesn't seem to get resolved and kind of unfinished hallways go to nowhere. So. Hard stuff, addiction and... Yeah, uh, despair. Yeah. Oof. You know, and you're so lonely and you're just you're stuck with that bottle and that's your main relationship. And, and here we are in a show about celebrating <laughs> the viable aspects of our future, but it's important to acknowledge all those hard things. That's right. You know, we're not simple one kind of human being. We're very complex and and that's exciting. We sure are. So before we go into another song of yours, mm-hmm. just tell us the name of this genius thing, just to hook people so they'll stick around. All right. So I, I created this workshop called Naming Your Genius and um, it really is a thought experiment. And the conditions of the experiment are that you do have a genius, that you have only one genius, your genius has been with you your entire life, your genius is natural and spontaneous and a source of success, your genius is a positive force, your genius is not what you wish it would be, it is what it is. Oh, that's probably, there's the rub. (laughs) There's the rub. People want to think that they're something, but when they do this work of naming their genius, they have to look at their resources, their stories, what is exciting to them and what thwarts them. And by looking at those different things, they can get closer to seeing who they are in the world. All right. Well, we're going to get into that in a little while. Yes. And maybe do a little bit of that work right on the air. Absolutely. You can be a guinea pig, right? Oh, that's my favorite thing. (laughs) Before we do that, though, let's listen to some more of Sarah's music. Now, this one is called Anybody's Baby. Want to tell us anything about this? Yeah. This one is, uh, I wrote this one, I have three daughters, and I was noticing that our world is very focused on getting a boyfriend when you're a girl and it it just was so upsetting to me to see my girls trying so hard to get a boyfriend so anybody's baby is like you'll do anything to be to have a baby and it's not just about my kids at all it's about girls you know just really trying to fit in and trying to make it and trying to figure out who they are and and they think they need to have a relationship which they're so incapable of having, usually, at that age. But um, So I wrote this song. All right. Anybody's Baby, Sarah Monroe, on Paradigms on WBKM.org. One, two, one, two. I see them everywhere Girls wanting to be Anybody's baby They dress immaculately In semi-relaxed styles As if they threw them on Anybody's baby, cuddle up and say 
beautiful spark in her eye, smile on her face. She's young, but the goosebumps rise. She thinks he's looking in her eyes. Won't she be surprised? She wants to know she's being watched. Going steady, is she ready? All her time, will she forsake? Anybody's baby, cuddle up and say, willful spark in her eyes, smile on her face Can't she see She doesn't need to be yeah. Anybody's baby Can't you see yeah. She doesn't need to be Sarah Monroe, Anybody's Baby, and that's your husband, Mark Legrand, playing yes, with you. Yes, Mark Legrand's playing the guitar and singing backup vocals with me, and uh, we recorded that on GarageBand, I'll tell you. We haven't actually put that out as an album yet, but I might be doing that in the near future. I hope so. I hope so, too. That's I think exciting. it's coming down the pike. Now, how did your daughters respond to that song? They t they thought it was about other people, <laughs> <laughs> right? But uh, they're, you know, they're doing a lot better. They're growing up. My my youngest daughter is 24, so she's not a girl anymore. And I did write this quite a while ago, so. So tell us a little bit before, before we were going to listen to another song and get into more stuff, but tell us a little bit about yourself as a an artist. And I know you're writing a memoir, so you've probably been mulling over a lot in your, about your life, but... Yeah, let's see. What can I tell you about myself? Um, I've been an artist all my life. I've always sung. Ever since I was a little girl, my mother used to tape record me in bed at night singing myself to sleep to Joan Baez songs, whatever, when I was, really sweet. I know, six years old. And uh, then, of course, I sang at Goddard, and that was really fun. I went to Goddard College with Barack. Yeah, um, and I probably the last few, maybe 15 years, I went out into the public world, really, and sang with my husband, Mark, initially, Mark Legrand, and uh, since then, we've had bands uh, at times. Right now, we're, I'm kind of laying low, trying to do other things, I, writing my memoir, and um, I also have an art business. I'm an artist, a visual artist as well. So, boy, it's, yeah, and I have a website. Should I tell people Absolutely. my website? Um, SarahMunro.com is my website, and it's M-U-N-R-O. And there will be a link to that on the Paradigms website after oh, the show. Excellent, so. excellent. As well as to your MySpace page where people can hear more of your music. That's right, MySpace, and I have a Facebook, too. Facebook. Woo! <laughs> so, I don't know, I've always been a creative person, 
and that's very exciting. And the the work naming your genius workshop that I'm going to talk about a little bit later really got me into thinking about all the different ways that my genius works in my life. So, and my genius is called creating aha. Ah, you named it. Yes, I named it, and it's it's interesting because it's with me in groups of people. It's with me when I'm alone. And it's a special gift that I give to other people. So it, I am going to really love this. I good. can already tell. Nice. So I love taking people through the process of thinking it through. Um, I like it when it's done in groups because then you have the whole group energy to work off. And people help each other name their geniuses. But it's also good one-on-one, too. And I just want to say, I remember... You, uh, your artistic genius with the batik work because oh, Sarah yeah. makes the most amazing uh, batik hangings that you put between glass and that I, you see all around Vermont. <laughs> and I have, in fact, seen them in other places in the country, your art. I've seen them in other places in the country, too, and it always blows my mind. And sometimes I'll be walking around <clears throat> town at night and I'll look in people's window when their lights are on and I'll see them hanging in the window and I'll be like, oh, there I am. I'm up in their house. And they're so beautiful. Oh, thank your, your you. Your use of color and form is really striking. Oh, nice. Yeah. If we could show you that on the radio. <laughs> One thing that you can't quite do. But they can go to your website. That's true. So go to my website in if you fact, want to see more. you're listening. <laughs> right. Well, let's listen to another one of your songs. This one is called Angel with a Broken Wing, and we're going to go into that and listen to a couple more tunes, not from Sarah, and then come back and, and do Naming Your Genius. Great. And, and let me just say that Mark Legrand wrote uh, Angel with a Broken Wing, and he had put it aside, and I saw it, and I said, why, aren't, why don't you do this song? And he was like, well, I don't know. I said, well, I want to do it. And he said, well, go ahead. And I, so I started doing it, and I started really falling in love with this song. And um, when the oil spill happened, I really was singing it out a lot and just feeling it. So I hope you can it's get a beautiful. sense. When Sarah emailed it to me, I listened to it immediately and wrote you back. I was, I was like, wow. Sarah Monroe and Mark Legrand, Angel with a Broken Wing.
That first cheating love it made you shame But you, you had to go and find another Didn't you? But the first cheating love Oh boy, do you remember That first cheating love it made you shame Evil
That's Many Rivers to Cross. Jimmy Cliff, one of the songs that Sarah picked. Yeah, I love him. I just think Jimmy Cliff has a way of expressing his, his song, and you feel his soul. And I just, I love that. I always feel it. When I listen to that song, I feel this deep feeling. And I think that's what music needs to do for me. It needs to touch me really deeply. Move Move me. Move that energy around. And Jesse Winchester before that, Evil Angel. Ah, he's just terrific. And his subject matter is so excellent. And he's, he's just fantastic still, like he was many, many years ago. But that song particularly... I love the idea that you have an evil angel on your shoulder and it's like, you know, trying to get you to do the things you know you don't want to do, take you a drink. know. Take a drink. Take Come a on. drink. One more cigarette. That first cigarette yeah. burned your lungs, <laughs> didn't it? <laughs> you had to go and have another. <laughs> you know, I just love the way it's put and it's so, it's, it's kind, kind of around addiction. So, yes. And, yes. and I think it's important to be kind around addiction. And we started out with that beautiful song. Oh, Angel with a Broken Wing. Yeah. Yep. And I love that. And Mark Legrand, again, he wrote that song. And, you know, trying to fix our beautiful world. We're all wanting to fix our world to some degree. And that's all about that. We've all got a broken wing. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, remember years ago, I went to a, a, a reclaiming witch camp. And the story that we were working with was the 12 wild swans. And, of course, the 12th brother has... Is only half transformed, and he has a wounded wing. And Ooh, I don't know the story. Oh, it's an old fairy tale. Oh, the wild swans. You'd love it. Oh, that would be great. I'll have to read that. So Sarah is going to talk to us now about naming your genius. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned earlier, but I'll mention again that it's a thought experiment. This workshop was created that you are actually looking for two words. One of them is a moving verb, and one of them is a noun. And the reason you're looking for that is because you're trying to take all of the information of your life and narrow it down into a common denominator. So there's a bunch of different, um, different, um, processes. Thank you. <laughs> processes and tools that I, that I walk people through to try and figure out what those two words are. So let's do a little bit. And yeah. folks who are listening, you can do this with yourself at home. You can just answer Sarah's questions to yourself and see what you come up with. Okay, so so try this one on, okay? This is called noticing yourself. Notice what you do when you are not noticing what you do. For example, June noticed that she suggested creating a phone list of meeting participants even though no one asked for such a list. Dave noticed that he straightened up the meeting room. Here is a list of things to notice. What is the first thing I think about when I enter a room? How about that? What is the first thing you think about when you enter a room? I notice who's there. You notice who's there, the people. Yes. All right. What is the first thing I do when I enter a room? I look for the exit. (laughs) (laughs) Is that true? You want to know how to get out. I want to know how to get out. You want to know how to get out. That could be a very important clue to your genius. I wasn't always that way. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What do I spontaneously contribute to the activity of a group? I tend to offer a kind of cohesion. Uh Uh-huh. And how, how do you do that? Um, by having ideas, by encouraging ideas, by bringing 
people's ideas together mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. encouraging the development of momentum. Mm, very interesting. Momentum and ideas and bringing them together. Mm-hmm. I love that. All right. So what kind of contribution do I often feel compelled to make to a discussion? <laughs> The one that makes me look right. <laughs> um, I think I try to. I often find the thing I think no one else is saying or naming. So you're looking kind of underneath. I look for the shadow. Uh huh. Looking for the shadow. That could be a, a, a you know a very good clue right there. Can your can your gift also be a curse? Uh, no. <laughs> it's it's a it's a power for positive success in your life. <laughs> It might appear to be at times. It's not always pleasant. Let's put it it, like it might not always be pleasant. That's true. That's true. Okay, so what kind of things do I feel compelled to do for others? What comes to mind is to help them see more clearly themselves, so, yeah. their surroundings, their situation. To help mm-hmm. them uh, be able to discern between the story in their head and what's actually happening. Interesting. So discernment, clarity. All right. Okay. What do I feel compelled to do simply because I enjoy it? Well, compelled, enjoy, compulsion. Then we start <laughs> talking about the songs we were just listening to. And, oh. uh, pleasure eating. Eating. Chocolate. Mm. So there's something about enjoying Sensual pleasure. Sensual pleasure. Yeah. Sensual pleasure. I love that. Sensual pleasure. Okay. What were the other things you said? Discernment. Discernment. Uh, momentum and momentum clarity. And clarity. Yeah. Those are all really important clues. Okay. They're going to add to to your name of your genius. All right. I'm sure they are. And I hope at home y'all are writing down your answers or remembering your answers <laughs> to these questions and picking out. The same thing Sarah's doing for mm-hmm. me. So associate anything that you notice with any other activities that seem similar. What other activities do do I engage in in that in that that seem similar? It's just kind of looking broader. What is it? Oh, what are things that I do that resemble each other? Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I love to garden. Mm-hmm. I love to to make things grow or to watch things grow. It's not even making them grow. I love to see them grow and I love to pick food that I grew or I love hanging out with my chickens and Mm. there's one hen that likes me to pick her up. I like stroking her under, you know. I like being with alive things, people, Mm -hmm. animals, plants. Not so much to do anything to them or even for them, but being with them. So being with them, being with them, that's an interesting piece of it too. So as you peel this onion, because this is kind of like peeling an onion, right? Yes. Your genius is, is, is like that, is like an onion. Imagine an onion in which the outer layers represent your skills, talents, behavior, accomplishments, interests, and creations. You have developed your talents and skills and produced your creations because they allow your genius to express itself. Your interests, your behavior, and your accomplishments they're also expressions of your genius. So there's more pieces that you would try and figure out what what behaviors do you have? What are your talents and skills and interests? 
creations and accomplishments. So listing all of those things is important to also continue the process of looking for that common denominator. What is common in all of those things? Huh. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say from all the stuff that I just said, what feels like it's common in all those things is some kind of, I'm almost embarrassed to say, some kind of altruism. <laughs> <laughs> Can we still use that word on the air? Altruism, altruism. <laughs> um, sensuous. I, 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 when I'm in my most strong, healthy self, mm -hmm. I really love being able to see the beauty around me in people, in the earth, in everything, mm -hmm. in music. I, I, I can be brought to tears by a song or a, a sunset or a tree or or someone's look or you know I yes, love yes 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 beautiful so probably you get frustrated when you don't have those things in yes. your life that and that's another part of naming your genius we, we don't have to go into all of frustrations and curses but it's also good to look at what frustrates you so I will often ask answer I mean I will often ask you to think of uh, and answer these questions. I feel frustrated when? I feel frustrated when I see people willfully ignoring the beautiful world they live in. Do you, they're not um, aware of it. They're, they're not they're aware of it. They're shut down. You know, and it's one mm. thing when people, and we all have lots of baggage, mm -hmm. when people have reasons or things that are distracting them. and they. But when people have a choice and know they have a choice mm. and choose to look away mm. from the beauty to mm -hmm. say be more focused on money or mm -hmm. or something that I value less, yes. I find that frustrating. Right, that they're missing their life, they're they're in the future or in the past maybe with their mind and yeah. not seeing the moment. And they're not there to be with. Mm. You can't be with someone who's doing that. Yes, it's almost impossible. Yeah, you can it's be around like them. You can send out a line and try and reel them in, but you can't necessarily get them to to be present with you. No. Yeah, I've seen that too. That's frustrating to me too. Yep. Hmm. Interesting. And um, so it also gets you to look at something like as a child or a teenager, what frustrated you? Do you remember anything? Probably things I can't say on the internet. Okay, that's fine. But I would say uh, what frustrated me most was feeling horrible and not knowing how to change it. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I know some people who look back at their teenage years with wonderful, oh, I was so happy, but most folks I know had a lot of challenge, and I certainly did. Yes. Wow. Incredible. So let's do one more little part okay. right now. And um, this is called Telling Stories. Think about three instances in your life when you were successful, you felt good about yourself, and whatever you were doing just seemed to flow. And those are the three criteria for the stories. Actually, right now, we'll just think about one story because right. we don't have time for three. Well, and you mentioned this to me, and the first thing that came to mind was the time I spent at the Common Ground Health Clinic in New Orleans after Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. Mm -hmm. And I spent six months there, and for about three of those months, I was really doing a good job of offering counseling to uh, residents and providing support for people in the clinic. Mm, so you were supporting and you were counseling. Yes. Those are two things you were and doing. And there was an incredible amount of just flow. Everything just seemed to fall together. It was this long-term peak experience. Really. Wow. Long-term peak experience. 
I'm wondering uh, whether peak experience has something to do with your genius. Huh. Well, I, I like intensity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've seen that in you. <laughs> I've seen that in you and your shows and the way you, who you choose. Yep. And you're choosing some, some of the most intense things that are happening in the world. And you comment on them. So I'm, I'm thinking about the term peak experience that you just used and uh, wondering whether that has something to do with your genius. Um, Interesting. I could, could. It's just, I'm, you know, if we had more time, yeah. like these usually last six hours. Right, so. right. This is the crash course. <laughs> this is the crash course. But to think about the stories in your life, again, where you were successful and you felt good about yourself and whatever you were doing just seemed to flow. Those are the places where you have been in your genius. Your genius has been working well. Mm-hmm. So it's quite interesting to be looking at the stories. And the reason they ask for three is because they can be different stories from different times in your life, and then you start to see the parallels. What happened? What, what was flowing? How did it flow? Peak experience. There's some level of intensity that was happening and it sounds almost like accountability to each other or to the to what you were doing to your we, work the group of us that were working together were doing it was an incredible thing because mm-hmm. we didn't know each other most of us and we came together and created a working clinic that is still to this day serving people so it was a uh, a, a, a high point in expressing my altruism wow certainly yes being part of something like that that's interesting. Talk to me a little bit about al- altruism. Well, altruism, I, as I understand it, is that part of you that just wants to make things better for everybody, that wants mm. to help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think we all have it, mm-hmm. however much we allow ourselves to be in touch with it or think it's doable. Right. Um, right. Altruism. I get it. I get what you're saying now. And the one thing that they, they caution against with naming your genius in this kind of an experiment is not to say people help people, mm-hmm. but what is it specifically that you do for a person that is, that is your way of functioning in the world? What do you offer them? Do you offer them insight into themselves? Do you... When I'm in a good place, you know, yes. it's not all the time, yeah. um, I think what I offer them is, it sounds corny, but to really be seen. Right on, to be seen. Wow. Wow. There's something about the peak experience and being seen here that I'm getting. All those people in New Orleans Mm -hmm. who came, they needed so much to be seen Mm -hmm. and heard Mm -hmm. and, and I want to say validated, to have their Mm -hmm. experience not dismissed, but to be uh, uh, affirmed in the fact that they were having a traumatic Mm -hmm. experience and that they were not crazy and Mm -hmm. that, yes, your city did just... Mm-hmm. almost come to an end and you, people needed you know we need that connection yes and that's something that i was able to offer yeah gorgeous it's very interesting, interesting. yeah I, i'm getting a sense of your genius as you're talking but it's for you to uncover it's always the individual who has to uncover it and in the workshop i have people try on words write out one changing verb like as you know, mine is creating aha. But there's a few other examples. Maybe I'll give you just to think on right. on it. Well, let's let's go back to some music and come back to this in a little bit, and uh, let everyone digest what you've done so far with this process, and then uh, we'll be back. 
Actually, we're not going to go back into music. We're going to start with the first part of our interview with Colleen Rowley. And we're going to think about her genius, right? Think about her genius. So as you're listening to Colleen, you can hear, imagine how she would answer those questions about Mm -hmm. the things that matter to her and, Mm. and also take in what she's saying. And then we'll come back. We'll have more music. We'll have more Sarah. But this is the first part of our interview with Colleen Rowley on Paradigms on WBKM.org. Well, hello, Colleen, and welcome back to Paradigms. Yes, thanks for having me. There's a lot going on in your neck of the woods, and I wanted to check in with you about what's happening and what you're doing. Maybe you could fill us in. Well, we've, uh, it, we've really had a lot happening here in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Um, let me start with last week. I, I, you know what? Let me back up to September 24th, which is just a couple of weeks ago. Five anti-war activist homes and their office of the anti-war committee were raided by the FBI at 7 a.m. They were executing, the FBI was executing search warrants looking for photographs, documents, computer storage that they said linked them to various foreign terrorist organizations uh, to include the FARC and Colombia and the Palestinian groups in, uh, in, in Palestine. So that happened, and so that's kept us very busy. And as a former, of course, retired FBI agent and legal counsel, I kind of think I know what has led to this this um, turning of uh, law enforcement and intelligence and security now more inward into our own country. And it's got a lot of roots. It's been going on essentially since uh, 9-11. So I've written about some, you know, this phenomenon and also have done some lobbying and tried to even uh, signal to our, our Congress that they need to perhaps consider something like a new church committee type hearing before this gets even worse. So that's happened. And, and then uh, here... Uh, the, the activists themselves who have refused to cooperate with the grand jury have organized rallies in front of the FBI office where I used to work. Um, so there, I think there's been three of these rallies now. I, I went to the first one. I was uh, out of town for the last two. But So that's been going on. I think a lot of folks may not understand why someone would refuse to testify in front of a grand jury. Can, I, I know that uh, when you go before a grand jury, you don't have legal counsel and you're behind closed doors and you're not allowed to speak of it afterwards. Is that correct? Yeah, but here's the dynamic with the grand jury. And, and this is rather unusual. This doesn't happen that often. The normal workings of a grand jury, I'll, I'll explain what the norm is and what what's going on in this case. The normal is that uh, a prosecutor presents evidence to this group of citizens who sit on a grand jury for months and then at the end of the presentations, and he can call different witnesses. Usually he calls, you know, FBI agents and, and government witnesses and, and occasionally outside witnesses to this grand jury. And they give the, what they know. Let's, you said it was a fraud case. You'd call in, you know, the accountant and say, now, what did your review of these records show? And then that accountant would say what he knew. At the end of the presentation, sometimes these can go on for months, they vote as to whether to indict the target or the subject. That's how a normal grand jury works. And you can issue grand jury subpoenas at the outset for documents and for testimony. Um, in a case of where uh, you're executing search warrants at the same time as you're issuing these grand jury subpoenas, that's a little, little less common. Because it, it kind of indicates, although no one knows for sure what evidence exists, the probable cause, the factual justification, even for these searches, the reason why the judge signed them, 
that uh, factual justification that's contained in the affidavits in this case is not known. And that's also kind of unusual because usually, let's say it was a bank robber, the factual justification, the affidavit, is then shared after the search is over. It's not shared before the search, but it's shared afterwards. So in this case, it all must be under court seal, all again secret. So, you know, you can imagine being in the, in the position of the activists who now are subpoenaed. They know that they were the target. They were at least the target of the search. And they don't know if they, um, you know, if they're the ones who are asked to be a witness. Are you going to ask me for information, for instance, about the FARC or something? Or are you going to, am I the target? So very wisely, I would say, it's probably um, pretty common that uh, an attorney would say, well, with this kind of uncertainty, uh, you're going to have to, you're basically forced to say, uh, to rely upon the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And it's just the protection because you have no idea what, what's going on. You don't know what's, what the kind of evidence they even have. Now, what can go on from now, this is, they're in this limbo now because they, uh, the first two groups that were subpoenaed to the grand jury, I think, did uh, refuse to testify saying, you know, we're, we're going to rely on the Fifth Amendment at this point until it's clearer what's going on. Now, the, the government rescinded those grand jury subpoenas. Now, what can happen is the assistant U.S. attorney can give grant immunity. So if, let's, say, let's assume that there really was very little factual justification there. Some people who believe this was more of a, of a fishing expedition. So if that's the case, now the government might say, well, you know, we subpoenaed 14 people and these five or these six are the real targets and these other seven are the, just the ones we wanted to make talk. And so what they would do is they would grant immunity to the, uh, the ones that they didn't consider to be culpable or, or as culpable, and then they would try to force them to talk. Now the people who are subpoenaed and now granted immunity have a choice. If they now refuse to testify to the grand jury, then they can actually be jailed for contempt. So it's, you can see how the, the coercive effect uh, of all these things together Yes. Along with the secrecy, the secrecy is a big, big aspect. Again, if you had an idea of what was going on, perhaps it wouldn't, uh, you know, you wouldn't be worried. You know, if if a bank robber uh, was living next door to you and you got subpoenaed to the grand jury to say, you know, that did that guy drive this car home, you know, very few people would say I refuse to testify. Right. You make an interesting point because you're using examples. You're saying a bank robber or fraud or whatever. But these are peace activists. Why is the FBI targeting peace activists? Well, here's, you know, I have to write a longer piece. I've written two Huffington Posts, and I alluded to a couple of things in these Huffington Posts, but there's a bit more. I just haven't had a chance to really get it down. I, I've kind of outlined it. But what I, what I wrote about in the Huffington Post, of course, the very first thing, and, the, and really maybe the most important thing, is that, the Patriot Act in uh, 2000, October of 2001 added a couple of words, just a couple of words in that whole 300 pages that expanded on what is considered to be material aid to terrorism. There was a law in 1996 that, that prohibited material aid to terrorism. And, of course, most people are okay with that because they think, you know, if I went over to uh, a country and, and, and sold weapons to a terrorist organization or if I, or even if I was to, to fund a terrorist organization, people can kind of understand that that would be material aid. But what happened is in October of 2001, they added this word 
um, expert advice and assistance. Okay, so now you're turning what most people really would would see into a First Amendment right. And if you start to think, what could be an expert, what could be advice? There was a test case uh, that began in California of a humanitarian law project group that simply wanted to talk and advocate for nonviolent resolution with the PKK, which was a group, there's like, 41 groups that, that unilaterally the FBI has, or not the FBI, the, the U.S. government has determined with a, no judicial process whatsoever to say these are foreign terrorist organizations. One of them is the PKK. I forget what it even stands for, but it's a group in Turkey. So this humanitarian law project said, well, that isn't right because we're, we're going to actually reduce uh, conflict and terrorism. If anything, we're, we're going to be helping the cause here. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, no, uh, we meant even speech, if you can imagine this. Uh, this was kind of a shocker. The decision was in July, and it was uh, Georgetown law professor David Cole who argued on behalf of the Constitutional Rights Center for this uh, humanitarian law group. And, you know, the shocking conclusion came down that the, the 6-3 decision is that the Supreme Court now considers speech or advocacy as a crime. And already in July, people went, oh, my goodness, this could really bode badly if this was pushed to its limits. Now, of course, the limits, if you, if you start to think about it, and I, I have thought about this because I want to explain to people what's wrong here, you immediately think of missionaries, missionaries operating in foreign countries. You, you think of people like Greg Mortensen setting up schools for girls in Pakistan and Afghanistan, and he has had to deal with all kinds of people that live there that are in different groups, and even to include the Taliban. It doesn't mean, certainly doesn't mean he condones terrorist actions on the part of the Taliban, but in setting up schools, which is going to have an ameliorative effect, he's had to deal with this whole range of people that live there. Uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Carter, of course, monitoring election fraud in, uh, in the Mideast and also in South America has had to deal with all of these groups. And so if you use the widest, broadest interpretation of the Patriot Act's expansion on material aid to terrorism, you can get to the situation we saw on September 24th where the FBI is now considering anti-war activists who have possibly, I don't know, it may be, you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, have had some communication or advocacy involved with what, what the United States declares to be a foreign terrorist organization. Colleen Rowley, that's the first part of our interview with her. Colleen was an FBI agent for years. She was a trainer of FBI agents. She was a count, she's an attorney. She was counsel for the FBI. So she has really watched things change. Yeah. She was on the show last year. Mm, Very interesting. Incredible. And we'll be listening to a little music and then another segment of that interview. But the whole interview with Colleen was an hour long. Mm-hmm. So it will be available in its entirety on our website uh, right after the show ends tonight. Oh, and great. People can hear the whole thing. Very, very interesting. Well, let's get into some music. Here's a beautiful song that fits with all of this, of course. Funny how everything works together. <laughs> this is a song called Humble Me by Nora Jones, which you picked. Mm-hmm. And how. Nora Jones on Paradigms. Mm-hmm. 
look down at the side of the road Stranded at the outskirts and the sun's creeping up Baby's in the backseat, still fast asleep Dreaming of better days I don't want to call you, but you're all I have to turn to What do you say when it's all gone away? Baby, I didn't mean to hurt you. Truth spoken whispers will tear you apart. No matter how hard you resisted, it never rains when you want it to. You humble me.
do we do now? What do we do now? What do we do now? Wine is lying there with a busted heart like a piece of glass. Where do you start? Do we pick it up or say goodbye? Is there one tear left for us to cry? What do we do now? 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 What if I can't stay? What if you can't stay? What if I can't leave? What if you can't leave? What if I believed every word you say? What if you believed until today? Do we call the kids or call the cops? Can you hold me till this howling stops? What do we do now? 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 back my steel, give me back my nerve, give me back my youth for the dead man's curse. For that icy feel when you start to swerve, give us back the love we don't deserve. Cause we rode it long, we drove it hard, and we wrecked it in our own backyard. What do we do now? 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 John Hyatt. Mm-hmm. So if life is really a love affair with life, you know, we all have this love affair with life, and yet there are always these challenges. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Were you going to put her on? And then, uh, <laughs> yeah, and Nora Jones before that, we heard. So uh, Sarah and I are sitting here talking more about naming your genius. We're going to listen to the second part of the interview with Colleen Rowley, and then we're going to come back and talk with Sarah some more and uh, head out with music. So so one thing, can I add one yes, thing? I'm just thinking that, you know, a couple things are coming to mind about her genius, Colleen's okay. genius. I, I, I'm seeing searching for clues. Mm-hmm. She's constantly doing that, digging deeper. She's an investigator. Revealing secrets. Yep. Could be something like that. Yep. Just might think about that while yeah, you listen to her. That's, there you go. Mm-hmm. Listen for those clues. Here's Colleen Rowley on Paradigms. So, so let me, I want to get this straight. The Patriot Act makes it possible to interpret anyone's behavior. Basically, if they have contact with anyone that the government might deem a terrorist. So I could... Right. I'm talking to someone in Pakistan on Facebook. Yes. 
and I could have my house raided and be told that I am aiding a terrorist. Well, that's exactly that. Again, that was the fear. That was that's what David Cole, a law professor, tried to explain to the Supreme Court that you can't you can't give. He basically was saying this is unconstitutional if you interpret it in this broad way. Even David Cole, though, thought that it might be some time before the government would actually take it to the to the nth limit this way. You know what I mean? I mean, you you say, well, they can they can do this, they can interpret it, but it, under their discretion, they would you know they'd be crazy to to interpret it in this broadest way. So, is what happened uh, in Minneapolis the test? Are we are we starting to see now the government experimenting with a broad interpretation? And well, that's that certainly is what it appears to to look like from the from the uh, outside objective. Uh, and and again, I have I'm not. I'm not just uh, somebody off the street. I actually worked in the FBI for 24 years. And without knowing, I will say, it's a key thing to know what that probable cause, factual justification was in the search warrants. Usually, that uh, probable cause requires that there actually be a reliable informant. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up with a few other explanations here that all tie in with this. And I'll just start with reliable informant, which is a, which is a hugely problematic area, too. Once 9-11 happened, you began, and that's, you know, a long time ago, nine years ago, you started to see the erosion of better standards and more uh, judicious forms and methods of investigation that had existed before 9-11. And one of them I'll, I'll get to is the operation of informants. Uh, there's enormous pressure, not only on the FBI, but on all 3,000 uh, governmental and private contractors now who are a part of this large surveillance intelligence complex, what the Washington Post called Top Secret America. There's 854,000 top secret cleared agents, operatives, and analysts in, in this uh, endeavor right now to prevent all future acts of terrorism from ever occurring. Boy, why it's does the word crazy. Stasi come to mind? Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's you know what uh, I have a friend Ray McGovern. He said it's like 9/11 was a was like a uh, a cumulative nervous breakdown, and and I think that's correct. It's like you know let's let's uh, let 854,000 Barney fights have their bullet, and uh, you know in the show he used to whenever ever anything you know got him got him uh, jacked up or nervous he came running to Andy and said give me my bullet give me my bullet. And the wiser Andy, who uh, kept his his wits about him and was more on the community police model, was always smart never to give Barney Fife his bullet. But guess what? After 9-11, uh, they certainly did the, these things. And they, they gave the bullet uh, and opened this kind of doors. They, they, it was a green light was on after 9-11 to a whole range of dumb, dumb responses and actions to include illegal torture and all kinds of things. But I'm just going to go through my list here of the things that I, I think you can really point your hand to. One, right off the start, I, I mentioned informants and then I kind of got sidetracked, but in, operation of informants is one. Uh, let's go back. The first thing is erosion of these old attorney general guidelines that used to limit what the FBI could do and who they could target. And, and, they, and they all came, those old attorney general guidelines were the result of the church committee back in uh, the 70s. Mm -hmm. The church committee found that there had been these terrible abuses in the 60s, uh, you know, 
spying on Martin Luther King and and uh, going after feminists, going to Pro, going after, uh, I think they even went after now, someone mentioned the other day, they went, went even after feminist groups, they went after certainly anti-war groups. Everybody became, looked at, in the, during the Vietnam War, it looked like, you know, everybody who was against the Vietnam War was somehow an enemy. And the church committee had this, and pipe committees had these really extensive hearings and said, okay, well, this is terrible, don't ever do this again, and we're going to uh, ask for strict guidelines to be put on so that you don't improperly target groups. And I, I've told people that's not to mean that during this lull period between the Vietnam War and 9-11 that there weren't mistakes made. There was one early mistake made in the CISPI's case. But even in the CISPI's case, when the FBI was improperly targeting a group, a church group that was sympathetic with people in El Salvador, uh, even then, guess what the result of that was when that was recognized? That was the, my, as all the legal counsels in the 56 offices were supposed to give training, First Amendment rights training, uh, every, uh, I think we had to do it three or four times a year, on the CISPI's case. So even in 1997, when I was giving legal training, it was a mandated part of my outline to always remind agents to be respectful of First Amendment rights, and it dealt with that CISPI's case. And then, of course, the attorney general guidelines did strictly control agents couldn't go into a mosque uh, for no reason. They couldn't just say, I just want to go listen, and maybe I'll hear something, uh, so I'm going to go to this church tonight or whatever. That, that was prohibited. No fishing. You had to have, yeah, you could, if you had a reason to believe that someone was going to plot violence or something, yes, then you could. If there, there was an illegal action being planned, that, yes, then you could justify it and you could go to a public event, but you could not do it just, you know, uh, for no reason. Those strict guidelines after 9-11 were very quickly by the Attorney General Ashcroft were loosened. Initially, they were slightly, I wouldn't say slightly loosened, they were loosened, okay, initially. But they weren't completely done away with, but they were greatly loosened. And I think this happened a second time where they were even more loosened, again, in this time period from 2001. Well, finally, you get to the summer of 2008, right before uh, the election, and they decided they would do away with the prior guidelines entirely because there were different sets of guidelines for each different type of crime. There were seven or eight different types of guidelines, and they said, well, they sold it. They said, well, we'll just have one guideline for all crimes, They'll make it easier to understand. But what they did when they did away with these guidelines, the, the substitute guidelines, basically uh, changes the premise. And so instead of having to show a factual justification for targeting a group, now there's an opposite presumption. The opposite presumption is basically that the FBI has to deny that they are targeting a group solely based on First Amendment rights. So you can see how this thing just was a sea change over that time period. Now, you can imagine, now that's basically a green light. You know, you, all of a sudden you went from uh, having to have some fact, level of factual justification till now, basically the FBI just says, well, we didn't target these anti-war activists solely because of their protesting or their First Amendment rights. Okay, so that's one major thing. The second thing, okay, I'll go back to the informants. 
there was always pressure to develop, you know, confidential sources, and certainly you want to have good information from from people who, you know, let's say a bank robber or something has a girlfriend. Well, certainly you want to have people that would be willing to talk to the FBI and and give information about all types of crimes. There were compliance, uh, strict, pretty strict compliance measures that were put on in the late, I should say the late 90s. They, they began to be discover in the late 90s that the FBI had been operating some pretty bad informants, organized cr- criminals, in fact, including Whitey Bulger. And Whitey Bulger was the, one of the heads of the Irish mob mafia in Boston, and the FBI had operated him as, as an informant for three decades. Well, they found this all out in about 1999, something like that. And then this was before 9-11 uh, again. So then the attorney general had put strict guidelines on saying, you can't do this, FBI. You can't operate heads of crime families and say that and look the other way when they're committing crimes. I mean, it's pretty obvious. But it's all cloaked in secrecy, and that's why it occurred. After 9/11, that course started going again very quickly, but right back to the back to where it was. And the reason is there's enormous pressure on not again not only the FBI but all of these agencies to to find and detect and and stop at all costs terrorism. They had something called total information awareness, where they were trying actually to make the postman an informant, and I mean everybody would be kind of snitching, and and uh, I shouldn't say snitching because that's pejorative, but but you know trying to get everybody to give information on it on their neighbors and and every customers and everything like that. So that actually now this, this pressure went in the other uh, respect. So. And they pay. Uh, there's incentives, too. So obviously, you can imagine you can get people, even out of the criminal element, if you're paying them, uh, that gives them an incentive then to, to fudge facts, too. So again, it's all this judiciousness that just kind of um, uh, went up in smoke. There's more to it. I'm Like I said, I have an outline of some of these factors, and I'm going to start to write about a lot of the problems, because there's... When people say, well, you're just complaining about, no, no, these all have solutions, and they all have actually quite simple solutions. So you're actually behaving like a responsible member of society by responding. (laughs) Colleen Rowley. So you can tell our conversation went on beyond that, and the rest of that interview will be available on the Paradigms website in a couple hours when the podcast goes up. So what were your thoughts about Colleen's genius hearing the second part? Wow. Well, I mean, even just right at the very end, she was talking about finding solutions and simple solutions. And I was thinking, hmm, finding solutions. She sounds like she's kind of doing that. She's she's trying to reveal secrets, and she is digging deeper. She's digging into the facts as she finds them. Yep. You know, And she's also searching for clues. So there's all these different pieces that probably add to her genius, but I'm wondering in her personal life if she does the same thing and if she's done that all her life, like as a child, you know, was she the person who asked a million questions of her mom and, you know, wanted to get to the bottom of things and people would, might get fed up with, you know, <sighs> yeah. Well, Colleen, if you're listening, let us know. <laughs> very interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting work. I think uh, that what you picked on, up on the finding solutions, um, this is the second time I've had a conversation with Colleen, and I would say that probably characterizes her. She is mm-hmm. really not only finding solutions, but believing that they exist. Mm, yes. I experience her as very positive. Yes. yes. Uh, and, and, and very much con- uh, committed to contri- contributing to society. Mm-hmm. And it, 
in doing it by pointing out here's some things that aren't working. Mm-hmm. But she isn't doing it from a, a despairing downer head place. No, and I don't I don't get the feeling that she's exhausted with it. That she seems very centered in her in her you know digging into the information and into the pieces and very historical looking at the facts. What happened? When did they happen? Who was involved? That yeah. kind of thing. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, we're going to listen to one more song and then come back and finish with naming my genius. <laughs> we'll see how far we get. And then we'll, yeah, really. Um, this is from Susan Tedeschi's album, Hope and Desire. Mm. It's called Share Your Love With Me on mm. Paradigms.
Susan Tedeschi, share your love with me. Isn't that nice? It's great. So powerful and emotional. Again, I love the emotion in the music. Her voice is very, she's very expressive. You know, it's not flat. She's really singing from her heart. And you know that Aretha Franklin also did this song. Did you know that? She did a great version, too. Oh, I would imagine. Very great, painful song, you know. Well, Susan used to come into another station I worked at years ago, and I never got to meet her, but people said she was just really nice. They loved it when she came to, to visit. That is so incredibly cool. So, mm. you're going to help me in the next, we've got about seven minutes, you're going to help me name my Ooh-wee. genius. Seven minutes to go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we were looking at words. We were trying, this is a word experiment, and uh, let me just give a couple ideas of genius names for okay. people out there in radio land. Here are a few that people came up with. Engaging the heart, digging deeper, pursuing understanding, taking care, straightening up, finding the positive, making it work, feeling deeply, Searching for clues, generating warmth, charting the course, building platforms, finding jewels, creating clarity. Hmm. So if we take the questions you asked a little while ago and Mm -hmm. we pull out those key words and we boil that down. Yes, you have some good words already. One of them, revealing, I thought was very good. Discernment, momentum, seeing and hearing came up. Your true self or truth, peak experiences, ideas, also heard came up even in a noun kind of way. I was looking at, I think, I think people weren't hearing us when we had a little conversation off air and, and you were saying how you didn't really like the word truth because it had a, two sides or many sides or is there really one truth but yeah, the absoluteness of the absoluteness word. of that word but i'm wondering what other words could be substituted for truth cuz the word that you came up with that you, you said revealing that's a mm-hmm. really good word yes. that really is a good word for me because it's what I do. And you've always done that, I've haven't always, you? I've always done that. As a kid as well. And so maybe it's not so much about truth as, I don't know, this sounds awfully jargony, but revealing what is. What is. Um, yeah, and, and what is could also be called essence. Maybe an essence, because you're not talking so much about, you're talking about something real and deep, an essence yes. of, some, of something, of a matter, of a person. Could that be? Essence is a good word. There, it feels like there's another word, and I don't, I can't mm. find it yet. It hasn't revealed itself. It yet. hasn't revealed itself yet, uh, and that also can be interesting for some people when they're trying to name their genius. If they're always weighing the opposites, like that, actually could be someone's genius is weighing the opposites, uh-huh. so they can, so that they have a really hard time then naming that because they're continuing to weigh the, the different parts of their genius. So the point is, by doing some really simple self-exploration, by asking yourself some simple questions, you yeah. can really get a clearer idea of who you of this aspect of yourself. Yes, your genius and how you work in the world with it. And if you can identify the elements of your genius, even if you don't name it, 
per se. You can set yourself up in your life so that you're not doing things that don't align with it. So that you're taking care of yourself in a better way so that you know yourself and know what you want to do. Your purpose aligns with your genius very well once you kind of get it. And even if you aren't ready to name it tonight, just acknowledging the fact that, in fact, it exists. Yes. Within each of us, there is that genius. Yes, that we all have a genius. That's wonderful. All of us. So you teach this workshop. Yeah, I've taught this this uh, workshop locally and uh, uh, regionally and nationally. So wow. it's been a great thing to teach. When you offer it, is it listed on your website at sarahmonroe.com? You know, I haven't put it on my website because my website came after I'd been doing this for some time. But I'm thinking I need to put it on my website. So I will put up some kind of a link to contact me about my ge- your that's naming great. your genius. Um, it's a wonderful workshop. I've had such great time. Of course, my genius is creating aha. So when people name their genius, I that's get it. so excited. I do the happy dance and I dance around the room. I can't hold it in. It's so great. And I just think it's a great gift to people to to help them discover and acknowledge more about themselves because isn't that what it what we need now yeah we need all of our collective genius yeah and honoring that and the individual in the individual way that we do what we do it makes up a magnificent world thank you so much for offering a little taste of that and before we head out into a little final music and say goodnight um, Sarah you and Mark are performing yes we perform every third Tuesday at the Grill in Montpelier, down in the basement area, from 7 to 10. And it's really fun. And come down, and they have tapas there, which is sort of Spanish food, little plates of food, and you can eat and hear songs. And we do our duet there. So, so that's this Tuesday. This coming Tuesday. October 19th October at the 19th. Grill in Montpelier. In Montpelier, Vermont. Montpelier, Vermont. So if you're not in Vermont, it might be hard to find it. but. <laughs> I hope people show up. I'll be there. I'll see if I can make it Tuesday night. Oh, I have students all night now. Oh, but I will come the time. next time. Absolutely. Good. Please do. Thank you so much for coming, Sarah. You're really, so welcome. It's only a pleasure. My pleasure. Well, folks, we're going to wrap it up with uh, a little more music that Sarah picked, something from Nina Simone, really beautiful music called Feeling Good. want to let you know that next week's Paradigms is up in the air. I still haven't got my interviews together, but I'm working on a really great show for Halloween night. Sunday the 31st that I think you'll enjoy a great deal uh, focusing on different ways different people uh, acknowledge and work with ancestors and and geomancy and it's just going to be great it's going to be great so I hope you have a wonderful week remember to check out our website paradigms.bz for all of our archived episodes they're all available as podcasts they're in the iTunes store and also uh, to hear the remainder of the interview with Colleen Rowley And also there's a link to an article there that she mentioned about a guy in the Washington Post I think you'll find interesting, paradigms.bz. Have a great week. Uh, We'll see you either next week or the week after. This is Baruch signing off one more time. It's always a pleasure. And uh, happy October. See you next time on Paradigms. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me, yeah. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new day.
a new life for me. been listening to Paradigms on WBKM.org.